Obedience results in slavery. Obedience results in slavery. Remember, when you obey the impulses of the old fallen Adamic nature, it results in a slavery. You're not just sinning. We are building a bad habit. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we've devoted the past few weeks to chapter 6, which is filled with passages that contain deep theological truths. As we approach the middle of this chapter today, we ask and answer the question, Whose slave are you? I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Now, as you're turning to Romans 6, you can see the title of the sermon is, Whose Slave Are You? Whose slave are you? Now, it's very possible this morning that you are sitting right next to a slave and they don't know it. What might be even more alarming is that they are sitting next to a slave by you and you don't know it. Now, slavery can come in different forms. Sometimes it's partial. Sometimes it's full. For instance, some of you may be enslaved to your job. We've coined a word in this, dec- in this uh, millennium, really in the last millennium, called workaholic. People who are so glued to their profession that they cannot take time to refresh and relax. Or maybe you're enslaved to things, the things you want or the things you have. It's called materialism. Or maybe you're enslaved to some attitude, anger, maybe to deception, maybe to lust. And so there's a hold in your life, a form of slavery. Maybe you're enslaved to having other people like you. Paul the Apostle, when he wrote to the church at Galatia, he said, For am I now seeking the favor of men? Or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, then I wouldn't be the slave, the bondservant of Christ. Men pleasers don't hurl the anathemas that he had just given earlier in this chapter. Men pleasers don't tell people the truth. And some pastors are enslaved to people liking them because they want people to come because it makes them feel better about themselves. But we are to be slaves of Jesus Christ. And God's going to teach us in our text how it is that this slavery unfolds. Now, freedom in our day is often misrepresented. But freedom biblically is not doing whatever you want, but it's doing what you ought. And Jesus understood it and taught it in that way when he said to those Pharisees in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And Romans 6, 7, and 8 deal with this subject of freedom. And God is helping us to understand how it is that we can practically be slaves of Christ. Over a century ago, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a little book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Many of you read it in high school. And it describes a person with two types of personalities. Dr. Jekyll, who is kind, reliable, gentle, consistent honest. And then at times, within his same skin, he would become Dr. Hyde, mean, hateful, murderous. Two persons in one skin. You say, this is not imaginary. Some of you are nudging your spouse. You're saying, the preacher's talking about you. (laughs) Well, you will remember that we've been describing not some kind of psychotic person, 
But God does teach that when you get saved, while you still have your old fallen Adamic nature that can indeed act up, you have a new nature. And there's a war within. And God wants us to win the war as we live out of our new creation, out of being the new man that we are in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, sounds like you found it. I want to begin reading in verse 15 where we left off last time. Follow along in your Bibles, if you will. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For for the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me refresh your memory with the context because it's several weeks since we've been here. If you remember, there are three principal divisions to the book of Romans, and the first division is found in the first eight chapters. It's the doctrinal section of Romans. And in the doctrinal section of Romans, there are three doctrines that are highlighted. The doctrine of condemnation, that man is justly under the wrath of God wherever he finds himself, anywhere on the planet, whether he's ever had a Bible or not, and we saw why. Then there's the doctrine of justification, how it is that a righteous, holy God can make an unrighteous person acceptable in his sight. And then in chapters 6 through 8, the doctrine of sanctification, sanctification, dealing with that process by which God makes us more and more like Jesus Christ. And so in the immediate context here in the sixth chapter, he's reminding us that we were slaves in Adam to sin, but now we can be slaves to our new maker, to our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we no longer need to live under the yoke of sin. And so we saw that through the death of Christ, God disabled our old sinful nature that Jesus on his cross not only dealt with the penalty of sin, but the very power of sin, that we now have a choice that we can make. And so we saw that it is essential that we understand not something just about justification, but about sanctification, that while justification is immediate, sanctification is lifelong. And so we saw in the plan of sanctification, there are three key words that the apostle highlights for him. Hopefully you have them underlined in your Bible. The word know, the word consider, and the word present. Look again in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So here's the problem. When you become a Christian you receive a new nature, a new capacity to live righteously before God. However, you still have your fallen Adamic sinful nature. He's called the old man in this passage of Scripture. 
You have the new man, as Paul describes our new nature to the church at Coloss, but we also have the old man, that old fallen nature. But its authority over you has died, and if you don't understand that, you'll drag it around like a corpse. And so he says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. The King James says, our old man. Literally, that's what it reads is in the margin of the New American Standard. But in more recent days, the newer translations will render it old self because they want you to understand it's a generic term. We could just as easily be speaking this, this morning, not just of your old man, but your old woman. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. If you have the New American Standard, you'll see a marginal note for those words done away with. And if you go out into the margin, it will see, render it made uh, made powerless. The New Southern Baptist translation says abolished. The ESV says brought to nothing. The King James says destroyed. The Greek word does not mean annihilated, but it carries the idea of rendered inoperative, rendered insignificant. God has made it so that you no longer need to operate out of your old fallen sinful nature. And if you do, it's because of a choice you're making, but God doesn't want you to feed it any longer. And when a Christian comes to the point of discouragement in his life or her life where they say, I will never change, I will always be this way, then the devil has you precisely where he wants you. He has you like a piece of putty in his hands. And so God wants us to realize that there is a choice that we must make that we can make. Now, it's much like Romans chapter 10. There's something you must know. When we come to the 10th chapter, he will say, whoever will call on the name of the Lord, applying it to Jesus, will be saved. But how can they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone tells them? And so just like you have to know and understand the plan of salvation before you can believe the plan of salvation, even so you have to know and understand the plan of sanctification before you can apply it. It's like the plan of salvation. You can hear it, you can understand it, but if you don't do anything with it, it's just theory. And so just knowing is just theory at this point. So he gave us a very important second word, and it's the word consider. You'll see it in your Bibles in verse 11. Even so, consider. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We saw that this word consider in the Old English reckon is a bookkeeping term. It referred to putting something to one's account or to number something. Just like you can know in the mind that two plus two equals four, knowing that with a sense of confidence, you can reckon it to be true. And so he's describing here more than just an intellectual thing, but a heartfelt kind of conviction. Even so, legizomai, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the very first command in the whole epistle of Romans. Paul is saying, you know the truth, now think it. Let it rewrite the tapes of your mind so you now begin to think your thoughts after these new truths. And so we're to consider what in fact we are, alive to God but dead to sin. And the secret of a holy life or the key, it's not really a secret, is not just the way you feel, but it is what you believe. How do you know, for instance, that your sins are forgiven? 
How do you know that you're not destined for hell? How do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? And some of you don't have that assurance. And if you don't, that's the first step. You'll never be able to change until you come to an assurance of your salvation. So come Thursday night and I'll help you with that. But how do you know it if you have been saved? Well, you reckoned it to be true based on what God revealed in Holy Scripture. Well, just as you reckon the plan of justification, you are to reckon the plan of sanctification to be true. You say, well, that's good for you, pastor, but you don't know my experience. You don't know how bad my habits are. And God would say, listen, I know your habits and you need to begin to appropriate this truth. See, it starts with knowing uh, and then reckoning. And so God wants you to understand that if you are going to be a slave this morning, it's not mandatory slaveship, it's voluntary slaveship. God doesn't want you to be a victim. God wants you to be victorious. And God has victory for us in Jesus Christ. And so there's something we must know that deals with the mind. It's a new realization. There's something we must reckon or consider that's centered in the heart, but he's not done. Then we saw a third word, the word present, that moves it into the realm of the will. Notice chapter 6 in verse 12. It begins with the word therefore. And so he's going to bring his argument to a conclusion. Look at, don't look at me. Look at your Bible. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Now, unlike justification which happens in a moment time. Again, sanctification is a process. It is lifelong. It's not sinless perfection. That does not happen until glorification. But there is a process, moment by moment, month by month, year by year, where God wants to make you more and more like His Son. And so we see here in verse 13, and do not go on presenting, that's the next key word, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present, there it is again, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, Paul is encouraging us with all that we are, with our eyes, with our ears, with our hearts, with our minds, with our feet, to present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice, as instruments of righteousness. And so again, just like you need to understand something about the plan of justification, we must understand this as it relates to the plan of sanctification. Three key words, know, consider, and present. And so God wants you to know you don't need to be a victim. You can be a victor. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's all by way of review. So this morning... And by the way, these chapters are inseparable. Chapter 6 opens the door. Chapter 7 carries us further. Chapter 8 into the full plan of sanctification. That's why I said I don't want you to miss a single chapter. They are all dependent one upon the other when it comes to practice in your life. Now, let me just kind of give you an overview of where we're going this morning. In verses 15 and 16, Paul states a principle about slavery. And then in verses 17 through 20, he contrasts two kinds of slavery. And then in verses 21 to 23, he brings it to a conclusion. If you're using your note-taking outline first, God's presentation of two slaveries. God's presentation of two slaveries. Beginning here in verse 15, the final paragraph of the chapter, I want you to notice it starts identically to the way the first paragraph began. The chapter opened with this question. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Notice how this paragraph begins in verse 15. What then? Or what shall we say then? Same thought. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And the response in verse 15 is identical to the response in verse 2. May it never be. Meganoida. Absolutely not. Of course not. By no means. Don't be ridiculous. What a ghastly thought. So many ways you could translate it. Shall we sin that grace may increase? No, not at all. And so Paul now rewinds the tape back to where he started at the beginning of the chapter, but he comes back with a significant change in emphasis. In the first 14 verses, he deals with our union in Christ. That when you are saved, you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, he makes you a member of the body of Christ. That makes us brothers and sisters because the same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in you. We're not all children of God spiritually. To those who have received Christ, to them he has given the right to become a child of God. You must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. But when you are baptized by the Spirit, which happens at the moment of conversion, you are identified with the Lord Jesus. So much so as we studied in those verses that when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. And so the identification truths of the cross apply to you. But now the emphasis changes a little bit. He asks again, uh, after the, the same question in verse 15, comes back with the same response, may it never be. And now in verses 15 to 23, he doesn't deal with our union with Christ, but our slavery to Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he asks, do you not know? That all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Notice how verse 16 starts in the same identical way. Do you not know? Don't you know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. There's a parallel here. There's something that we have to grasp. There is something that we must absolutely know. And again, in verses 1 through 14, we have to know that we are identified with Jesus Christ by spirit baptism, pictured, of course, in water baptism. That Christ's death dealt not just with the penalty of sin, but the very power of sin over us. And so there's something we have to know in this verse as well. Don't you know that when you became a Christian, when you presented yourself to Jesus Christ and you asked him to become your master, that you are now a new kind of slave and should in practice live out that slavery? Now here's the principle he's going to underscore in this verse. If you don't get anything else out of the sermon, don't miss this. That obedience results in slavery. Obedience results in slavery. Remember, when you obey the impulses of the old fallen Adamic nature, it results in a slavery. You're not just sinning. We are building a bad habit. For example, you go and you watch some sensual movie, or you read some romance novel, or you watch some dirty television show. What does your fallen sinful nature say? It says, I want more. You become a slave of the one whom you obey. Likewise, the opposite is true. When you present yourself to God as a slave to righteousness, 
then you become a slave of righteousness. And so the old man, the dirty old man, the dumb old man, the deceitful old man, the delinquent old man, the deranged old man, and we, dis- we studied that old man earlier, if you're with us, he says, go ahead and watch the movie. You're under grace. It doesn't really matter. You're saved. You're headed for heaven. And you can always confess it later. But when you realize something that is now true of you, that you're totally identified with Christ, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, when you consider and reckon that to be true, and you say, no, I'm going to yield myself and present myself to God as a slave of righteousness. Now, he's going to describe that power, the need for it in chapter 7, the reality of it in chapter 8. But it is possible because of our new slavery and our new identification with Jesus Christ. So Paul says, don't you know that you become a slave of the one whom you obey? Let me illustrate it. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Proverbs, if you will. If you're new to the Bible, go to about dead center in your Bible. You'll find the Psalms. And right to the right of Psalms, you'll find the book of Proverbs. And go to Proverbs chapter 5. The book of Proverbs has three principal divisions. Chapters 1 through 9 deal with the role of wisdom. Chapters 10 through 24 deals with the reach of wisdom. And chapters 25 to the end of the book deals with the reign of wisdom. So he opens up in chapter 1 with an invitation to wisdom. And chapter 2 with the deliverance of wisdom. And chapter 3 with the fruit of wisdom. And chapter 4, like a daddy putting his arm around his son, and he says, son, acquire wisdom. Watch over your heart because out of it flow the issues of life. And then in chapter 5, he's going to help him to see what wisdom does in terms of avoiding scandal in his life. Chapter 5, notice if you will, verse 1, Solomon reminds us of the same truth that you become a slave of the one whom you obey. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. And there are families today that are falling apart for a lack of wisdom, for a lack of knowledge, for a lack of discretion, for a lack of understanding. Then he says in verse 3, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. It's a parallelism here. As in the Song of Solomon, when he speaks of her lips, he's not speaking of her kisses. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so in Solomon chapter 4, he tells us that her lips refers here to her words. He's speaking here of sweet talk, flirtatious talk. The kind of talk that should only happen between a husband and a wife. And Solomon, of course, is speaking to his son. And uh, if he were speaking to his daughter, he might have given the man's line. But understand that most immoral relationships don't start with the physical. They start with words, flirtatious words. And people will come to the point where they can say, how can anything be so wrong when it feels so wonderful? Verse 17 of chapter 20, he will say, Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. And Solomon wants his son to spend some time getting wisdom, discretion, knowledge, and understanding. And one key to that is to soak your mind in the Bible. In the chapter 6, the next chapter, in verse 20, he will say, My son, observe the commandment of your father. And do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually 
on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you're awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment, he says here, is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue, the dripping lips of the adulteress. There's nothing, men and women, that will protect you more from the sin of infidelity than loading yourself up on the Word of God. Every now and then we hear of some pastor, some deacon, some religious leader, some church member who gets caught up in some immoral relationship, and we say, oh, look how far from grace he has fallen. No, that's not it at all. It's not how far he fell, it's how low he was living. Adultery doesn't just happen. It's a process that leads up to it. I've told you before that most marriages don't suffer from a blowout, they, they suffer from a slow leak. There's a slow process where there has been a, a series of decisions that we've made, things that we are willing to listen to and watch and expose ourselves to, and then the flirtatious words of the adulteress come and we become victims of her prey. Solomon warns here in verse 4 of chapter 5, he says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. What a deadly power sex sin has over the life of the person who pursues it outside of marriage. And by marriage, I mean between a man and a woman because that's the only way God defines it. But there are some built-in judgments that this sin has. It fascinates, but then it assassinates. It thrills you, but then it kills you. Her feet go down to death. This sin brings death, death to joy, death to purity, death to your marriage vow, death to holiness, death to your home. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament word for the place of the grave. It just means the place of the grave. But contextually in the Old Testament, it's used of two compartments of Sheol. There's righteous Sheol, what the New Testament calls Abraham's bosom, where an Old Testament saint went, awaiting the ascension of Christ when he would empty out Old Testament paradise and bring them into New Testament paradise. But then there's unrighteous Sheol. And so the King James says her feet go down to Death, her steps lay hold of hell. They don't translate the word, they interpret the word, but contextually they interpret it properly because he's talking about that place where an unbeliever goes. Today, absent from the body, present with the Lord for the believer. Absent from the body, present in Hades or hell. And someday Hades will be emptied out and it will all be cast into the eternal lake of fire according to Revelation 20. And so I want to tell you, God wants you to know that this sin brings death. Death in this life, and ultimately, if a person remains in rebellion and unforgiveness by Jesus Christ, they will experience what the Bible calls the second death. If you'd like to hear this or any of the messages from our series in Romans, why not download the Search the Scriptures app for iPhones, iPads, and Android devices. Just visit your iTunes store or Google Marketplace and search for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. You can also listen to or download this or any of our Search the Scriptures studies from our website, 
searchthescriptures.org. And of course, if you would like a CD or DVD copy, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM30 entitled, Whose Slave Are You? Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at Whose Slave Are You? Join us then as we search the scriptures.